The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by the American Beverage Association. Coke, Dr. Pepper, and Pepsi are offering more choices, smaller portions, less sugar. Learn more at balanceus.org. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 5th. In today's news, the Senate threatens to stand up to President Trump, for real this time. The Federal Reserve suggests it will change its interest rate plans to limit the damage of Trump's trade war. And Sudan's capital is on lockdown. But first, the big idea. Joe Biden's presidential campaign lifted language without credit at times word for word when crafting its education and climate plans, incidents the campaign acknowledges and says were inadvertent. This appears to be the mistake of staff, but it underscores how hastily Biden was attempting to put out specific proposals. And this issue is particularly sensitive for the former vice president, whose 1988 campaign was derailed after he plagiarized in various speeches rhetoric used by British politician Neil Kanak. Reports also emerged that he had used lines from two other Democrats, Bobby Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, without attribution. Biden was also cited for plagiarism in a paper during law school, an error he blamed on not knowing how to properly cite sources. Biden's campaign said last night that it would update his policy plans online to properly attribute the sources of information, which in the case of his environmental plan included a coal industry entity. For some liberal advocates, it's another sign that the policies are not taken seriously by the campaign or the candidate. The use of other groups' words in Biden's environmental plan became known after Josh Nelson of the progressive group Credo noticed yesterday afternoon that much of its language about carbon capture sequestration appeared to closely resemble talking points from pro-industry groups. Nelson then found that the phrases were a near-identical match with wording used by the Carbon Capture Coalition, whose members include Shell, Peabody Energy, and Arch Coal. My colleagues Matt Viser, Dino Grandani, and Jeff Stein confirmed the similarities, and the Biden campaign then owned up to it. Nelson says it's not a good sign for a Democratic presidential candidate to be copying things verbatim from a group associated with the coal industry. In a plan that was not plagiarized, meanwhile, Elizabeth Warren yesterday proposed spending $2 trillion on clean energy as part of her version of a Green New Deal. Warren is pitching what she calls a Green Apollo program to invest in clean energy technology and a Green Marshall plan devoted to encouraging countries to buy U.S.-made clean energy technologies. Warren also said she would replace the Commerce Department with a Department of Economic Development to oversee a new national job strategy as part of what she calls a new economic patriotism. In contrast to Biden, Warren's proposal was widely panned by groups linked to the fossil fuels industry. During an interview in London with former Celebrity Apprentice star Piers Morgan that aired earlier today, Trump said that Charles, the Prince of Wales, failed to convince him that the climate is warming during a 90-minute meeting about the issue this week. Trump said the climate, quote, changes both ways. Trump blamed China, India, and Russia for polluting the environment and said the United States has among the cleanest climates. Meanwhile, a group of young Americans who have spent nearly four years trying to compel the federal government to take action on climate change found themselves back in federal court yesterday, arguing that an unprecedented lawsuit they filed should move forward. The suit was filed back in 2015 by 21 young people who argue that the failure of government leaders to combat climate change violates their constitutional right to a clean environment. It had been scheduled to go to trial last fall before a district judge 
in Oregon, but it was delayed at the last minute when the Supreme Court considered an emergency request from the feds. In early November, though, the court refused to grant the Trump administration's plea to stop the case before trial, instead sending it back to the Ninth Circuit. The Trump administration, like the Obama administration before it, sent lawyers to argue that the lawsuit should be tossed out before it goes to trial, both because the plaintiffs do not meet the legal requirements to bring such a suit, and because, as the Justice Department put it in a new filing, quote, there is no fundamental constitutional right to a stable climate system. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, Republican lawmakers warned the White House that they are serious about blocking Trump's tariffs on Mexico if he goes through with them. During a closed-door lunch on Capitol Hill, at least half a dozen senators spoke out in opposition to the tariffs. No senator spoke in support. The lawmakers told officials from the White House and Justice Department that they probably have the votes in the Senate to take action on the tariffs, even if that means overriding a veto. Most GOP senators strongly oppose tariffs because they view them as taxes on Americans. Meanwhile, constitutional scholars say Trump's specious use of a national emergency law to impose tariffs on Mexico is legally problematic for a host of reasons. His promise to punish Mexico with escalating tariffs unless it controls what he calls the invasion of migrants across the border is premised on a law that has never been used either as a tool of immigration policy or trade policy, and it clearly was not intended to be if you look at the legislative record. Meanwhile, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's top Democrat and a close congressional ally of Trump are teaming up to try to block 22 arms deals largely benefiting Saudi Arabia. The move seeks to quash the administration's dubious attempt to use emergency powers to circumvent congressional objections. Bob Menendez, the Democrat from New Jersey, said in an interview last night that he will introduce 22 resolutions of disapproval, one for each deal that Trump informed lawmakers last month he'll push through over their holds. Lindsey Graham has been one of the most vocal critics of Trump's embrace of Saudi leaders in the wake of last year's brutal killing of Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi, said he's on board with Bob. Menendez and Graham's partnership comes as new details emerge regarding seven secret nuclear technology transfers that Trump approved for Saudi Arabia, two of them following Khashoggi's death. Senator Tim Kaine, the Democrat from Virginia, cited information from the Department of Energy, which told him that the Trump administration allowed U.S. nuclear energy companies to share highly sensitive technology and other information with the Saudis on October 18th, 2018, just 16 days after Khashoggi was killed at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And again, on February 18th, 2019, less than a week after the House voted to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led military effort in Yemen's civil war. Number two, Wall Street posted one of its best days of the year after Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell said the central bank will take appropriate action to insulate the U.S. economy from the harms of Trump's trade war. The Dow bounced 512 points or 2% on what was a pretty modest reassurance if you look at the statement. But the markets are desperate for reassurance. The Trump tariffs on China are exacerbating problems for Corn Belt farmers who have struggled to plant seeds this season amid historic rainfall. Through all of April and all of May, wave after wave of rain has hit the nation right in the breadbasket, with April capping the wettest 12 months on record for the continental United States. Farmers can't plant in that muck. It fouls their equipment and strangles their seeds. As the calendar ticks toward the point of no return, new data released last night shows that farmers have planted only about two-thirds of the acres they had planned to put into corn. 
the coming week's weather will make or break this year's crop. Farmers could switch to soybeans, but then they would find themselves even more exposed to Trump's trade war with China, the world's largest soybean market. And damning new research from the Brookings Institution shows the extent to which low-income American families are disproportionately suffering the most because of the Trump tariffs. There are two major reasons why the poor face an outsized burden. First, poorer Americans tend to spend all of their income, while wealthier folks have enough income left over to save and invest. That leaves the poor more exposed to higher prices from import taxes. Second, the wealthier are more likely to splurge on services like farm-to-table restaurant meals or gym memberships that aren't subject to tariffs. But poorer Americans spend a higher percentage of their income on basics like clothing and groceries that are more likely to be imported and thus subject to tariffs. But make no mistake, the middle and upper classes are suffering too. Number three, Sudan's capital is on lockdown right now after an explosion of violence that has killed at least 60. Paramilitary troops have surrounded the sit-in protest site that had been the heart of a pro-democracy uprising in Sudan's capital of Khartoum. We have reporters on the ground there who have been filing alarming dispatches all night long, and the country's political future really appears to be facing great turmoil. The paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, patrolled Khartoum streets, setting up dozens of checkpoints. They dismantled the sit-in site on Monday in an attack that killed at least 35. Dozens more were killed in subsequent skirmishes, including in Khartoum's twin city of Omdurman and in Sudan's West Nile state. Hundreds more have been injured. We don't have a solid count on that. Pockets of defiant protesters yearning for freedom gathered at mosques on Tuesday, turning their prayers into calls for sustained civil disobedience. Sporadic gunfire can still be heard throughout Khartoum and in the suburbs across the city. The wounded are recuperating in homes and hospitals. They're recounting the suddenness of Monday's attack and the fragility of their nonviolent movement in the face of a well-armed adversary. In its own way, 30 years later, this is today's Tiananmen. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, June 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.